the bronze serpent. In the first three verses that we're not going to read through, just to summarize, uh, the Israelites had somewhat been defeated by this king of Arad. Uh, king, king of Arad, and how you remember that is Arad extra dry, right? And so they are in the desert. And so uh, he takes some prisoners. It causes the Israelites to seek the Lord because often the Lord will have to bring consequences into their lives in order to get them to return to him, right? Y'all ever experienced that before? And so they, re they come to the Lord, and, and then the Lord gives them the victory. And so in verse 4, we see what happens right after they get the victory. It says, They journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people, the soul of, it's not just the soul of a person, but birds of a feather flock together, and, and a person's soul will affect another person's until a whole group of people become alike. And so the soul of the people, you're talking millions of people, became very discouraged on their way. The people spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes, loathes this worthless bread. So they're crying and complaining about no food, but they're complaining that this bread that they have is worthless. So they're also exaggerating in their arguments. So the Lord, he blessed them because that's what Jesus does in today's world. No, it says he sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What do we have in this story? What we have is a new generation of Israelites. This isn't the old people. This isn't the ones that, I don't mean old as an age. This is like the older generation that died in the desert, that was complaining all the time, that they rebelled against God and they wouldn't cross over. They didn't trust and fully believe in him. You have a new generation that's full of faith, that's ready to walk in the victory of the Lord. And they go to the, a city and they get defeated. It wasn't even like a grand defeat, like they weren't completely destroyed, but some Israelites were taken prisoners. And so they reach out to the Lord, and the Lord gives them the victory. Like they're able to see God's goodness. They're able to see his grace. They're able to see the victory that you can have when you're following after God and his ways. But it wasn't long after that that they quickly forgot the victory that God had given them. Like God can do good things and how easily people forget the good things that he has done and they go back to their same old ways. But this is a new generation of people and they're still complaining like their parents complained. The previous generation complained. I mean, can you imagine that 
You have manna. Bread from heaven has now been considered worthless. Like, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. God gives you this miraculous bread from heaven that has all the the nutrients you would ever need. It's enough provision every single day for you to live and that you would turn to God and say, we have nothing to eat. I don't, that's how I feel when I look in the fridge some days. (laughs) Probably what a slap in the face to the Lord is that. Like, really? You have nothing to eat, Corey? But can you imagine that they would look at the Lord and they would say, that bread has become worthless to us. Now, don't think of somebody else. Think of yourself this morning. When a person's heart becomes discontent in life, even the best gifts aren't pleasing. Like when somebody's really unhappy, you can bend over backwards and do everything you possibly can for them, and they're still not happy. But instead of when you hear that thinking of somebody else, sometimes we got to challenge ourselves. Is that me? These are the kind of people we're talking about. Nothing will change until their heart becomes right. And so... What does the Lord do to help bring their heart right? He sends fiery serpents to them. Listen, they despise the gift from heaven, and so God gave them serpents from earth. They despised God's blessings, and so God gave them a a burning poison. They despised the life that God had sustained for them, and so God brings them death. It brings them back to God. They acknowledge their sin. It says they repent and they ask for prayer. And so what does God tell Moses to do? This seems crazy, but the same thing that's been killing you, hurting you, harming your families, taking people away, wiping out people. I want you to take the image of that thing, put it on a pole, and then anybody who will look upon it, they shall be saved. That's it. That, that seems silly to me. Like, it's, it's nothing that they could do on their own. Not like, hey, you need, to, you need to repent 10 times a day, not just once a day. You need to say prayers three times a day, turn to the south, and, you know, bow seven times. It's, you, you don't just say you're sorry. You know, you could just say you're sorry. No, he tells them this outlandish thing that they must do. It's nothing that they could do on their own. And people are getting bit by the poison of essentially their choices, their sin, and snakes are biting them. It doesn't matter how righteous they were. Maybe they weren't one of the ones that were complaining. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't complaining as bad as somebody else. I wasn't complaining as bad as that person. Bam, they get bit anyways. It doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter how good they were, how bad they were. It doesn't matter who they were, how big of a, how large of a status they had in their tribe or whatever it might have been. Every single person, the only thing that they could do in order to get healed and be saved from dying was to look upon a serpent. It doesn't even make sense. I can't even imagine. We might look back and think, well, you know, we're much smarter in today's world. Yeah. But I guarantee you they would probably think, really? That's illogical. You're telling me that the only thing I need to do to live is to look up in faith. 
Because it's your word and trust that now I'm going to live. Trust in something that seems so foolish to the intellect. And it's enough to save you from death. Now, turn to John chapter 3. And let's read where John continues in writing about Jesus. When we're looking at the apostle John, remember three gospels have already, already been written out of the four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so you wonder why John, in what would have been an older age for him, would have looked at the three that were probably out there. Possibly he had read or heard of them. Paul was already establishing churches. Why would he write an additional letter of his own to add to what was already there? Except for he understood that there were some false teachings that were coming out about Jesus. Him, being a friend of Jesus's, decides to write his own gospel to battle those questions that people had. You know, who is Jesus? Was he really just a man? Or there was some belief that he was just spirit. And as we've seen already, he proved in chapter 1 that Jesus is fully man and fully God. That he came from heaven to earth in order to reconcile his relationship with mankind through the cross. And so in John chapter 3, we're going to see why he would place this story next. It's the story of Nicodemus. It says in verse 1, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Everybody say Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? It's important for us to understand. In Jesus' day, there were different religious groups. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but probably the two most popular that you'll read about in the Bible are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They ruled the Jews, but they ruled in different ways. They were both, quote, religious, but one was much more religious than probably the other one. And they had different views or beliefs, but they were all still Jews who believed in the one true God. So the Sadducees were called sympathizers. They worked with the Roman government. Most Jews hated them, hated the Romans. The Sadducees were those who were uh, the one percenters. They were extra, extra wealthy. They were the intellectual elitist. Uh, they were politically, socially, and even religiously influential. Most of their work was involved in the temple. And so anything that took place in the temple was typically controlled by the Sadducees, including the work of the high priest and many of the temple guards. Uh, they controlled all of that functioning, the festivities, the feasts, the sacrifices. They controlled all of that and probably gained a lot of wealth from that. They emphasized, of course, because of what they controlled, a strict adherence for Jews to be at the temple, to worship at the temple, to make their sacrifices at the temple, to celebrate their feasts at the temple. They only followed the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe in anything spiritual. They didn't believe in miracles, signs, and wonders, and angels or demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or the afterlife. And then you have the Pharisees. These two were in opposition to each other to some degree. The Pharisees were a separatist group. What does it mean to be a separatist group? 
Uh, it's kind of like what Jesus calls us out of darkness and into light, out of the world and into his kingdom. In some way, the Pharisees viewed themselves as somebody who had been called out of the world. They, they separated themselves from anything that they viewed worldly, anything that they viewed evil, anything that they viewed dirty, which included people, any process that they would view as being dirty. They separated themselves with people with diseases, blood issues. They separated themselves from people that weren't a part of the Jews. They separated themselves from the Roman government. They separated themselves from everything they possibly could, so there was no way that they could be considered impure. And when it came to the Pharisees, they were devoted to the will of God. What they believed was the will of God, as it was written in the Law of Moses. They were so devoted to finding God's will that when it came to the laws of Moses, they would come up with these things called the oral law. It was the Mishnah that was later written down. And the reason they would do that is because they didn't want there to be any ambiguity in God's law. And so if there was a question, they would have to define what the issue was, and they would create their own oral laws so that it would eliminate any question in God's word. What that uh, led to is that over Years, there were laws upon laws upon laws, all built upon, in theory, God's law. And so these guys were so devoted, and we look at that as, if you know the Bible, like these Pharisees were bad guys, they were really trying to eliminate any question of whether or not we're following after God. They did have a passion, and they believed in the resurrection. They believed in free will. They believed in the spiritual world, miracles, signs, and wonders. So you have two groups these two groups also made up what was known as the Sanhedrin Council. So it says that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. What does that mean? Well, not only could you oversee or be influential with the Jews if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but you are a part of the Sanhedrin Council. The Sanhedrin Council was kind of like the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of Israel. And so it was mostly filled with one party. It's not much different than today. You have the Republicans and the Democrats, and I don't care what you say, uh, our Supreme Court has Republicans and Democrats sitting on it. As much as they're not supposed to be known as one party or the other, our Supreme Court is a two-party system just like our country is. And it was the same way in Israel. You had the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. It was mostly the Sadducees that ran their Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, but there was a few Pharisees that sat on there. And if you were a part of the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, then what that meant is that you were probably very wealthy, that you were among the most influential and powerful people in all of the nation of Israel. Now, here's why I would explain all of that for you who don't like history, is that this is who Nicodemus was. He was a Pharisee. He would eliminate any question in life by investigating and coming up with what God's will is in this question or situation. He would go to an extreme to make sure there was no doubt in life, that he was strictly devoted to the word of God that he was wealthy, that he was influential, that he was one of the most powerful people in Israel. And this is the person that comes to Jesus to ask him questions. Why would John present this story as essentially the third story in his gospel so far? I think to me it makes 
I don't want to see logical sense, but in a, in a sense, logical. He just spent all of chapter one describing the word became flesh, referring to Jesus, the one who's turned water into wine, performing miracles, signs, and wonders, all symbolic of blood, the blood of Jesus, how it would be shed, his death and his resurrection were all a part of that miracle. The one who would go in and have a passion for his father's house, the temple that would cleanse it from deceitful hearts, the one that was working for righteousness, the one who then remained, it said, in that uh, section of the story in chapter two and continued to perform signs and wonders after he finished that, which caused many to believe. Now we see the introduction of Nicodemus. Nicodemus has probably heard the stories. He's witnessed some of these stories. He's heard about who this Jesus is and who people think that Jesus is. Is it possible that Jesus is the Messiah? He's seen and heard enough that it has stirred up the thoughts inside of him. I've got to go to church. I'm joking. Right? Is that not what happens sometimes? We get these thoughts. We get these questions. There's got to be something more in life. we got to figure this out. And so, you know, we go to, to the closest thing we think is Jesus. In his day, it was directly to him. He's got to figure this out. He wants to know who this Jesus is. Is there more to this man than meets the eye? And so in verse 2, it says, He came to Jesus by night. Everybody say, by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Like that's his greeting to Jesus. Why did he come at night? I'm only going to point this out because in the end we're going to see uh, something completely different. But it's possible that he came at night because he didn't want anyone to recognize him because of who he was. He was that wealthy and influential and a religious leader, and most of those guys were looking down on Jesus and thinking that, you know, he was, he was from the devil, essentially, and here he is coming and wondering about Jesus. Who are you? Could you be the Messiah? And Jesus's answer is no, but yes. or I might say, not a simple yes. In my mind, what Jesus gives him is, I want you to understand I'm not who you came looking for, but I am. I am. If that makes sense to some of you. He was looking for a deliverer for the nation of Israel. But Jesus wants to get across to him. It's not what you're looking for, but I am. I am the Savior of humanity. And so in verse 3, Jesus says this to him. Most assuredly, he's wanting to explain this to him. I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, listen, Nicodemus starts off with what we would mostly consider a cordial greeting, right? Hey, you're such a man of God. God is with you. Like, what a greeting. 
Jesus, he just doesn't dive into, oh, thanks for saying those nice things about me. Yeah, that's awesome. God is with me. He doesn't even go down that road. Thanks, you know, for, for greeting me in that way and recognize. He doesn't even care. He cuts straight to the point of why he knows Nicodemus is even there to begin with in the dark of the night. That there is more than meets the eye that you're never going to see unless you are born again. Now, to the intellectual and devoted follower of Nicodemus, Jesus' response is a statement that goes beyond his understanding. Like, it doesn't even make sense to him. As a Pharisee, more than likely, Nicodemus was sure of his eternal salvation. Like, when you look at Nicodemus' life, I want you to really fully understand this. There was probably no question that Nicodemus thought he was going to heaven. It doesn't even make sense for Nicodemus to even question whether he's going to heaven. Nicodemus had no reason to really even believe in Jesus or follow after Jesus. Nicodemus had everything in life, what he would have viewed as the blessings of God. He would have had money. He would have had intellect. He would have had influence like I've already described. He had all of those things in his life that he would have believed was because he was righteous, because he was good, because he strictly followed after God's law, that he did all of his sacrifices and he did everything right. You got to understand that this is a man that was raised in the Jewish faith. These were probably the things that he was taught from the very beginning of life. He probably knew no differently. If you're going to heaven, this is the way you do it. It was what he was taught, is what he would then study, and then he would teach himself. He's brought up in this way all of his life. It's the only thing he knew. And it wasn't like he learned this in school and then went to a different profession and did something else. It was not just something he studied. It became who he was. There would be no reason for him to think anything differently. Literally, it was who he was. And Jesus is saying, it's not what you think. This is something completely different. What you need is a new divine beginning. That word again in the original language, it can mean anew. It's that refreshing. It can mean over again. It happened to me once. It's going to happen again. It can also mean from above. Now, what I've read is that from above is a better translation, that you have to be born from above. But again, Nicodemus, he wouldn't get this because he's already that person. He's already good. He already follow, like he's already connected to God in his own mind, and he's doing everything right just as he should. But his mind is stuck in the natural, like I've done everything I could possibly do. So what you're telling me, how in the world who's somebody that is already old be born? Like, can you really re-enter the womb? I don't think he's being a smart aleck to Jesus. I think he's like saying like, really, like what you're describing is impossible. And so... The first point that I want to make is why Nicodemus would struggle is that when somebody is born from above, it brings understanding into their life, which the opposite, because I was trying to be positive in my points, is that if you haven't been born from above or born again, you will lack understanding in your life. 
Now, this isn't judgmentalism. I want you to hear this truthfully. Like, I don't know if you've ever like tried to talk to people who have never accepted Jesus into their life, made them made him Lord over their life, and they just don't get it. You know, in, in years of trying to witness and share Jesus with people, there's been times where like they ask a question that I think is a fairly simple answer. It could be answered five different ways from scripture that all essentially say the same thing. And so you can provide them an answer out of the Bible and that doesn't answer the question for them. And so you go to a different one. By the time you hit the fifth one, they still don't get it. Have you guys ever like tried to go through that with somebody? And so I, I've had those times in my life, and some of you who know me know, well, that might be because, Corey, you're not that great at communication, right? Uh, you're communicating lacks. But the truth is this. One of the, probably the most frequent things that I've heard from people is that they have read the Bible, or mostly they'll say, I tried to read the Bible, but I just don't understand I just don't understand. Now, the worst can be when somebody thinks that they understand, and you typically know, like, they'll throw out a scripture. Oh, but the Bible says this, and then you hear them say that, and you're like, are you even saved? Like, the scripture that they throw out is not even a scripture, or it's a misquote of a scripture, or it's out of context. Let me give you guys some examples God helps those who help themselves. That's from Judas 1.1. Because that's not a scripture. Money is the root of all evil. That's a misquoted scripture. Judge not lest you be judged. Probably my top favorite number one scripture that people say out of context all the time. And they, you say these things, people say them because they don't understand, because it's impossible to understand until you have that relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is inside of you as your teacher and he brings you to that place of understanding. I remember I heard this story one time about a ministerial group and they were trying to come up with a book that they could have new believers read. And so as they were discussing this book, one of the pastors said, you know, I don't think that that's a very good book. I read that when I was really young and in church, and I didn't think there was any gospel in it. There was no, like there was, it wasn't even really about Jesus. And so one of the pastors was dumbfounded. He's like, really? I mean, have you read, like, have you tried reading it again? Uh, and he said, no. I said, he said, well, I, before we make the decision, I, I just challenge you, get the book and read it for yourself. So he reports back to the ministerial association, and he says... I read the book and I, I have highlights on every single page of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the only thing that he could think is that he read that before he was ever even really saved. Like he grew up in the church that he didn't think preached the gospel. Well, the truth is his heart wasn't where it should be when he was growing up. But he came to a place of knowing Jesus as his Lord and then he goes to become a pastor, and now he rereads the book, and he's like, how did I miss all of this? It's not a knock against anybody. It's the truth. Like, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you will understand about his word. 
and I can't say that there's anybody in here that knows it all. It's a lifelong process. We're continually growing, learning, and studying. But for anybody here this morning that would say that they don't understand it, that it's hard to read or whatever, I would just challenge you, like, really pray, spend time in worship, read God's word, and allow it to get inside of you. Read it slowly, ask questions, and you you will get to know and understand God's word in a greater way every single day. But Nicodemus, as smart as he was, even in religious things in the Bible at the time, he still missed it because he did not have that relationship with Christ and at that time the Holy Spirit inside of him. And so in his question where he doesn't understand, Jesus responds again and he tells him, most assuredly, because Nicodemus isn't getting it. He's like, what are you saying? Like, I don't get it. And, and Jesus is like, listen, no, this is a fact. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit. Now, I don't want to get into any theological debates here. Like I've read different people that think that Jesus, when he references born of water, is just talking about natural birth. Some people believe that it's about baptism, which was the baptism of repentance, the baptism of John at the time. What he's talking about, regardless whether it's one or both, is the natural aspect of life, that this is something that happens that's spiritual. Like, listen, you need a spiritual baptism. You need the spirit inside of you. He can't, if you have not had a connection with the Spirit of God inside of you, then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh and that which is born of spirit, or that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Like you can't birth things that don't go together, right? A cow can't birth a chicken. Like, and that's what he's saying. If you're born of the flesh, you birth flesh. If you're born of the spirit, you birth spirit. If you're going to be born of the spirit, then it has to come from something that's of the spirit. What's he describing? He's, he's describing that there has to be this spiritual experience. And so he goes on and he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, there's, there's a sermon that could be put in there. I'm going to summarize just a, a blip of what Jesus is describing. He's describing the act of a spiritual experience as being like the wind. The wind is not something that you can see with your eyes, but you can see the effects of the wind, right? I don't know if you guys have ever heard it, and I don't know where I heard it first, but I, one of Billy Graham's most famous sayings is that God is like the wind. And it was played in one of DC, I'm probably dating myself, Uh, DC Talks songs. Like, it's the idea. You can't see God. You can't see spirit. But you can see the effects of the spirit. And so when you're born of the spirit, you should see the effects of the spirit in the person. So point number two that Jesus is trying to get across to him is that being born again isn't what you think it is, Nicodemus. You have other thoughts. This is a spiritual transformation that I'm talking about. You don't understand because one second... You're spiritually dead, and then you surrender your life to Christ, and the next second, you're alive in Christ. The Spirit of God is living inside of you. It's not something that visibly took place, but you will see the effects 
of what took place. You're no longer controlled by the sinful lust and impulses of the natural flesh, but now you're being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Something completely different. Nicodemus answers Jesus and he said to him, how can these things be? Remember, we might, we might think like, we understand, but Nicodemus has been trained in this all of his life. This way, all of his life. It doesn't make sense. And Jesus answers and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. I know this sounds complicated, to some degree, but Jesus is trying to reiterate several times. He's essentially reiterating what he just said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And he's telling him that, you know what? Nobody's ascended to heaven. Well, that kind of eliminates any idea that, you know, Nicodemus had like, well, how in the world could you be born again, right? And Nicodemus, Nicodemus's mind, and we can't think that he's being dumb here, from a Jewish mindset, the idea of being born again in a Jewish mindset, this is something that they might practice several times throughout their life. That, that word for again would relate to returning to God again. And there were times where they practiced, typically through repentance and baptism, that they were coming back to God again, that there was a return to God in a greater way, that there's a return to God that's a renewal, that it's something new, that it's a different experience in life. Uh, Jews would get baptized and they would come back to God again through teshuva. It's called, it's repentance, but it's more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's, it's literally like changing your way to come to him. There's a significant change going on in their life. So they would practice this again in their life when they got married. Significant aspect of life. They would get baptized. There would be a cleansing of their life. They would move from single into marriage, completely different aspect of life. They would do it when they, if they went from like uh, whatever their profession was, or they're being raised up and moving into being a priest or something, there would be a baptism that would take place and repentance. They all practice it during this season we're in right now, which is the Feast of Trumpets, known as the, the days of repentance, the high holy days, from the Feast of Trumpets to the Day of Atonement. It's where people get baptized continually when they're Jewish because they want to make sure that after a year of living, that they're right with God again. And so it's a returning to God again. And so in, in Nicodemus's mind, he probably probably thinks that I have done all of these things again and again and again. Do you guys get that? When you're talking this born again aspect, he has done it all. Like add that to the fact of who he is, how he was raised, how he follows God's law. He has done teshuva. He has done the baptism. He's came to God several times in his life. So for him, the idea of salvation, returning for renewal, was always accomplished by something that man can do. You tell me how I can do this, and I'll do it. But what Jesus is trying to describe to him didn't sound like something that man could accomplish. I, I don't understand. How can I crawl back into my mother's womb? Like, 
Like what you're describing isn't something that I can do. So how can this happen, Jesus? You can't just be born from above or born from the spirit. Spirit produces spirit. To be reborn, and somebody hear me, is not something you can do. So the Son of Man came down from heaven, and instead of man coming to God, God chose to come to man. That's the difference that he's trying to get across to Nicodemus. God had to come to man so that man could ultimately return back to God. And Nicodemus is not getting this. So what does Jesus do? He stops talking with earthly symbols and instead he just flat out introduces himself and his mission with a story that Nicodemus would know from the Old Testament. And what is that story? Verse 14, he says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Numbers 21. You want to know what this is about, Nicodemus? You remember the story of the bronze serpent, that weird story? Now the Son of Man must do likewise. And he explains who he is and what must happen in his life. As he had done in the previous two stories, he's referencing his death, the resurrection, the life that will come with it. And then he goes on to explain to Nicodemus these words. You might just know it as the most famous verse in the Bible. But these were words of Jesus to Nicodemus to describe how this all takes place and why it took place, and what his mission is. And so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus to help bring understanding to what Nicodemus needs to do. He said, for God so loved the world. That's something that Nicodemus couldn't have said for himself because he was a separatist, and everybody else in the world besides a Jew was dirty. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son his one unique son, that whoever believes in him, you're looking for a Messiah to rescue the nation of Israel from the Roman government, but this isn't about the natural, Nicodemus. You came to see who I am, but I am. And he says, if you believe in him, you should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not what you've thought all of your life. It's not what you were taught, and it's not what you have taught others. But this is the way to everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. What's he describing to Jesus? He starts off with that story that we read all 
already in Numbers chapter 21, that this is what it takes. This was what must happen to me, and this is what it takes for other people. Look up in faith and believe. Now, the idea that you have to be born from above is mind-boggling if your lineage isn't from above. That's what he was thinking. To be born again for a Jew would have meant that they had to do something of themselves to return to God. You know how many people think that and struggle with that idea? Like you have to do something in order to come to Jesus, to, to be anew in Jesus. I had someone come in my office this week and he was coming for something other than church stuff and sitting here and the discussion brought up about coming to church. And he said, oh, if I came to church this Sunday, the walls would fall in. I, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said that. And my response was, what's crazy is you're already in the church and the walls didn't fall in. He had nothing to say. But, but people think that they have to do something because he thought he was so bad that if he came in, the walls would fall in. That was what he was referencing, right? Like, I got to clean myself up first. I, I've got to ch make some changes in my life that there's something that I have to do in order to come to God. And what Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus and everybody else is that this isn't about you coming to God. This is about the fact that I came to you. to be a new in God. And he's trying to explain, listen, nobody has went up into heaven, Nicodemus, that could then birth you. But understand this, the son of man came down from heaven. And, and he's referring to himself, of course, as he quotes the story of Numbers 21. People were being saved from the poison of their sin, not by anything that they could do on their own, not by their status, not by who they were or how righteous they were. The way that they were being saved didn't make sense to anybody, but by simply looking up in faith to the bronze serpent that was lifted up on the pole by Moses, they were depending and trusting in God's way to bring them life. That was it. And so Jesus is like, listen, just like you know that story, look at me, the son of man must be lifted up. And in the same way that probably doesn't make sense, whoever believes in me, that listen, this has nothing to do, Nicodemus, with your lineage, with the fact that you're a Jew, that you were born into this, it has nothing to do with your intellect, your wealth, your influence. It has nothing to do with how good and devout you are. In fact, Nicodemus, this may have been his personal challenge for his own salvation. The truth is that whatever you're seeking in life, it can't be found in the natural. Now, it won't make sense because it has nothing to do with your lineage, your intellect, your wealth, your influence, or how good you are of a person because it has nothing to do with you. Now, some of you are probably like thinking good, but there's truth to the fact that there's a lot of people that think they're good 
Like if, if most people struggle, if we think about this honestly, most people I'll hear from, they'll be like, you know, like the guy that came into my office this week. Hey, like my life's so bad the walls would fall in. Like they, they need to get some things right before they would ever come to church. But then if you sometimes sit down and have a conversation with those people outside of church, trying to encourage them to come in if they're not ready to come, what will their argument be? Not how bad they are and the things that they have to clean up, but their argument is just the opposite. But I'm a good person already. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't make sense. Like we were out there and you're already a good person, but then to come in here, you're a bad person. Will you explain that to me? You think my Jesus doesn't make sense? Your life doesn't make sense. Because people will argue that because they're so good that they don't have to. But the truth is when they come in, they think they're so bad that they can't. And so he's trying to get this across. It has nothing to do with you, Nicodemus. You know, a lot of us, we confuse our goodness with our lineage. Not that we're Jews, but, you know, there's a lot of people that think they're okay because they were born in the United States. Like, we don't have a life like everybody else has in the rest of the world. We don't have things going on like, I have a good life, I'm a good person. Or maybe I was born into a Christian family and they were Christians and we went to church. Like, I'm a good person. I confuse my goodness with the way I was born or where I was born. I confuse my intellect because, this isn't Corey, by the way. Some people think that because they're so smart, they understand other things that people don't. Like, you know, they, they're good. Some people, they confuse their wealth as God's blessings. Like, our, God's already blessed me. I got all sorts of wealth. Like, I've, I've lived a really good life. Like, why would, why would I need anything else? Some people confuse their influence. You know, I'm a social influencer. Like, that's not any of us here. But you think that you have influence with other people's lives and that you're already helping change other people's lives for the better, making good people gooder. I said that on purpose. I'm a good person is the point. Or they think that because they do a lot of generous things for other people, or maybe they're even, uh, here's where we have to be careful. You might even think because you're faithfully devoted to godly duties that you've, you've accomplished something, that you're a good person. You've ever hear, heard of people that went to church for years and then all of a sudden they have a revelation of Jesus Christ? It means that they've been going through the motions all of their life, but it was all right here. Like there was no true transformation in their life that changed the way they thought and the way they lived. Now listen, Nicodemus was not a bad person by worldly standards or even in his own community, religious standards. He was good, but for all the good in his life, Jesus wanted him to understand his good wasn't enough to save him. But what may have added even more conflict, check this out, to Nicodemus's thought process, his uh, pharisaical intellect, his idea of being a separatist from the world and those he considered to be impure is that Jesus mentions he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. So being born again or being born from above also has nothing to do with how bad your family is, how bad your upbringing was, how intellectually challenged 
you might have been in life. It has nothing to do with that you were born poor, how lonely you are, how bad you've been as a person making terrible choices in life. It goes both ways with Jesus. It doesn't make sense, but it has nothing to do with you. Salvation has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with looking up in faith to the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who was on a pole, raised up on a pole called the cross. It has everything to do with the fact that he came down from heaven to be lifted up, that we might have a restored relationship with God and eternal life. Verse 19 through 21 And this, Jesus continues to Nicodemus, is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he does what the tr- but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that that they have been done in God. Now you see throughout the Gospel of John, he's contrasting, starting in chapter 1, light and dark. And here he does it again. And what's he referencing? To Nicodemus, those who practice life outside of the way of God, which he just described, is the spirit being born from spirit, being born from above, being born again. Those who practice outside of that, they hate the light and their deeds are evil, no matter how good they think they are. And then, of course, not coincidentally, when did Nicodemus come? In the dark. He didn't want to be seen in the light. It's possible that in making these final statements to Nicodemus, that Jesus was challenging Jesus. You came to me in the dark. I just brought this spiritual explanation to you of what it means to have eternal life and who the Messiah really is. And by describing those who practice in the light versus those who practice in the dark, Nicodemus, which group do you come from? As I said in the beginning, Nicodemus had no reason, no logical reason to follow after Jesus. However, he was one of the few that allowed his heart to be stirred by the miracles and signs and wonders and came to Jesus and asked questions, even if it was in the dark. We don't know this to be fact, but theologians believe that if you look throughout the Gospels, there was a transgression, there, not a transgression, there was a progression in Nicodemus's life, in his relationship with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell the story about a rich young ruler that would approach Jesus and ask him of what it would mean to essentially enter the kingdom of God, of heaven, to be a part of that. And Jesus tells him, 
he lists all the things, like six of the commandments, and the rich young ruler says, I've, I've done all of these things from my youth. And Jesus tells him, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow after me. Now, many theologians believe that the rich young ruler wasn't named in the early Gospels, but his name was Nicodemus because he was rich, he was young, he was a ruler. And of course, it's talked about in some of the later writings by Josephus and Tertullian about who he was. The idea behind that, for those who know the story, is that after he met with Jesus in the dark, he did come to him in the light. And he said, please tell me again. Jesus, he's still looking for something that he has to do. Like, tell me what to do. Tell me the steps to, to surrender my heart. To sur like, tell me what I need to do. And Jesus, again, had repeated some things. He's like, but I've done all of those things. And so he's like, well, take the thing that challenges you the most, your wealth, and eliminate that. But probably the greatest challenge wasn't the eliminating of wealth because he had a lot of stuff. The greatest challenge was the next thing Jesus said to a leader of the Jews and a very powerful person in the nation of Israel was, then come and follow after me. And it says that the rich young ruler went away sad. But it doesn't say that he didn't do it. Because we later find out in scripture that after Jesus died on the cross, that one of the other men of influence, his name was Joseph, uh, I'm going to say of Arimathea. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. You guys know the story that this rich guy came and gave Jesus a borrowed tomb. He came and he asked for the body of Jesus. This rich guy was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And this rich guy, it's believed, according to later writings, he had a best friend that was also a part of the Sanhedrin and very wealthy, and his name was Nicodemus. And they had to actually go to Pontius Pilate to do this. But it says in John chapter 19, verse 39, that when Joseph came and asked Pilate for the body, he came and took the body away, that he was accompanied with someone else who cared about the body enough that he would be there that day. And the Bible names him as Nicodemus. Not only did he come with Joseph, they came together, but it says that it was Nicodemus who brought all of the spices and everything that they would use for Jesus's burial. It is believed, according to history, that Nicodemus came to a place of salvation in Jesus Christ. He experienced the light of Jesus in such a way that like the Israelites, it caused him to see his wrong, to ask for forgiveness, repent, and look up in faith and trust that God has done it for him. And that's what God wants of all of us this morning. We have a tendency to complicate things with the issues of life. And this isn't about our complications. This isn't about you, how good or how bad. 
This is about what Jesus Christ came and did for you. That is salvation. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that uh, in this season of studying the gospel of John, like after reading about Nicodemus, it became a fascinating story to me of who he was and the challenges that he would have faced as a rich man. Getting to heaven would be more difficult than a camel going through the eye of a needle. And yet he did. He did. I think about the pride of life that he may have had by his successes. And yet he did. But most importantly, I think about your words to him. The true gospel, for God so loved everyone, not just those that considered themselves righteous, but those who considered themselves condemned already. That he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. That we might have eternal life. In this time and season of renewal, like the day that we celebrate today, looking forward to your return, I pray for every single person that's here, every single person that hears this word and this sermon, Lord, that there would be something inside of us that would see the greatness of your plan the greatness of your accomplishments, the greatness of your love, and that it would spark something inside of us to say those same things. Lord, I want to be anew in you. I want to be refreshed by you. Lord, I want more of you in my life. No matter what it takes, I want to follow after you. No matter what it takes, I want to follow after you. Help us to be those people. In Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray.